Amen. Thank you, Aaron and Nate and Lauren and the praise team for that good reminder that without the cross, thanks, without the cross that we wouldn't be here now. That the cross of Christ is the foundation for all that we are and all that we believe. And a crossless Christianity is one that is devoid of power and of any kind of real meaning and substance. Thank you for that reminder that God's love has been demonstrated for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. Thank you for that uh, good gospel reminder. Praise team. It is my last sermon uh, for this series in the book of Acts. I'm kind of sad about that. I closed my, I have three commentaries I've been using uh, throughout this series and I closed them. I was like, I guess I don't need these anymore. I can put them back on my shelf for a while, which is weird. And when we started uh, planning this series, you know, over a year ago, we thought that this was going to be a year of growth and, you know, explosive growth for Woodmont. We've been poised and ready to really grow and take off and do some really amazing things in ministry. And then we had no idea what the Lord had in store for us. And we named this series The Unstoppable Church because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus. That's what he told uh, his uh, apostle Peter. But we had no idea what this year would have in store for us and how important it would be to be reminded that the body of Christ is filled with God himself, God the Spirit, and nothing, not a pandemic, not divisions that run deep in our country, not anything can stand in the way of the church. Even though we're full of broken people and we have broken leaders and we have um, incredibly flawed uh, opportunities that we miss every day, we are still reminded that we are the unstoppable church. And just like the church in Acts, Woodmont Baptist Church will continue to accomplish what God has for us. It's a good reminder. You know, all throughout this book, we see one improbable victory after another. And what's crazy is, you know, Rome is the dominant empire of this season. They rule the known world at this time. But just a few short centuries after the book of Acts, the Roman Empire would be destroyed forever. And the church would explode on the, the world scene to the point now where there are over two billion Christians in the world. The church has survived pandemics, wars, schisms, reformations, heresies, governments, crackdowns, natural disasters, and she will continue to play her part in continuing to advance God's good purposes for a broken world. Today we're going to see another divinely appointed, improbable escape from the Apostle Paul this one involving a shipwreck out at sea as he journeys to Rome. Now, any kind of wreck is terrifying. If you've been in a car wreck, you know that, that just gut-wrenching feeling, even if it's a small one. Uh, a train derailment, those are terrifying when you see those on the news. But I would propose that there's nothing more terrifying than a shipwreck because you're out at open water. There's the double danger of not only uh, having your vehicle destroyed, but then not having anywhere to go except the open water. There's many movies that have been made about that because it's so scary. One of the most famous shipwrecks happened on April 15th, 1912, 
according to the definitive account by a guy named Walter Lord, who interviewed many of the passengers on that vessel, at approximately 2.20 a.m., the back end of the luxury liner known as the Titanic, uh, the, the rear end of that ship known as the stern to you seagoing folks, uh, lifted out of the water as the ship began to sink. Uh, the, the, the propellers rose towards the stars and a horrible crashing sound happened as gravity took over and everything that was untethered on that ship began to go towards the front or the bow of the ship. For the, I had to look some of these things up. Uh, to the front of the ship and the lights flickered on board and then they went out for good. And gravity again sent these items falling into the water. Walter Lord tells us it was a mixture unlike any others that was hitting the water at the same time. 15,000 bottles of ale and stout. Huge anchor chains. Each link weighed 175 pounds. 30 cases of golf clubs. 30,000 fresh eggs. Potted palm plants, five grand pianos, a cask of china that was bound for Tiffany's, a case of gloves that was destined for Marshall Fields, and most valuable of all hurtling into this mixture were the 1,500 passengers that were unable to get off the ship before. So while the, the stories that we hear of the Titanic and the, the Lusitania and the Arizona, these, these famous sunken ships, these stories are true and they're tragic and they're fascinating. But today, the story of the shipwreck that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 27 is part of God's word. It's not meant to, to thrill us or entertain us, but it's meant for our spiritual edification as part of God's living and active word. It's part of our sanctification process, becoming more like Jesus as we read this text today. Let's set up the scene first. How did Paul wind up on a sinking ship in the first place? Let's look at the map, and I hope you can see this, but let's track his journey a little bit uh, throughout what he's been experiencing so far. Remember, after his third missionary journey, he took up a collection for the struggling church in Jerusalem. Right over here, you can barely see it. Jerusalem was here, and he, he obviously started a big commotion in Jerusalem. He was run out of town. He appealed to his Roman citizenship and was sent to Caesarea, the, the provincial uh, seat of Roman government in the Judea region. And after several kind of sham trials in Caesarea, he, he spent two years in prison there. And finally, last week, we saw how the governor Festus agreed to ship him off to Rome. He appealed to the emperor. He had the right as a Roman citizen to go to Rome and to be heard by the emperor himself. So he's put on a ship and he's put in, in, the, in the charge of a centurion. Remember, centurions were uh, Roman soldiers who were in charge of 100 men, 100 soldiers. And this guy's name was Julius. And Julius was a pretty good dude, apparently. He, he liked Paul. Paul was a gentleman and a scholar. 
So Julius agreed to allow Dr. Luke, one of Paul's buddies and his attending physician, and and more than that, he was a co-laborer in the gospel message that was going forth. He allowed Luke to go with Paul to Rome, and another guy named Aristarchus, who was a, a devout brother from Thessalonica as well, to attend to Paul's needs. And the first place they go is a a little place just up from Caesarea called Sidon the next day after they left Caesarea. And in Sidon, Julius lets Paul go visit his friends there and and things look pretty good. Like this is going to be a great journey to Rome. (laughs) But it all goes downhill after that pretty quickly. They go from Sidon up around. If you're going from here to Italy, which is up here, You would think this would be the fastest way to go, right? Under this way. But a northerly wind sent them straight up and around the north side of Cyprus. So already they're not going the right direction. And they kind of cruise along Asia Minor here. They cruise along the coast of Asia Minor until they find a port called Myra. In Myra, Julius, the centurion, finds a big Egyptian grain ship that's bound for Rome. And he says, great, we're going to book passage on this grain ship for me and for my soldiers and for Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. So that sounds like easy sailing now from uh, Myra over to Italy. It should be nice and easy, right? But as soon as they take off from Myra, the, the wind, instead of being able to go this way, again, pushes them north And they they travel with great difficulty over to the next port city, which is called Nidus. And they finally make it to Nidus. And here's the thing with these Egyptian grain ships. They were not great seafaring vessels. They were 140 feet long and 36 feet wide. They were huge. They were sturdy ships, but they they weren't built for the open seas. They didn't have a rudder. They had two kind of big oars in the back that they had to steer with. And instead of having multiple sails where you could kind of tack into the wind, they only had one mast and one big square sail on the middle of it. So they kind of were at the mercy of wherever the wind was blowing. And they're huge ships. There were 276 people on board this ship. And after several days of sailing, they they finally make it to, to Nidus and then when they take off from Nidus, you'd think they would go this way, but the wind forced them south this time. And they were forced to sail under Crete, the island of Crete. And they finally make it to Lysaia, which is also known as Fair Havens. And Paul is an experienced traveler. And he, he tells the captain of the ship, and he tells Julius the centurion, look, guys, it's already past October. Passover has already happened, the Feast of Passover. Let's just set here in Fair Havens and wait until winter passes because everyone knows you cannot sail on the Mediterranean in winter because the waves are so rough. It would be a disaster. The problem was nobody wanted to stay in Fair Havens. I won't compare it to a small town because some of you are from certain small towns, but these Roman city folk or these Egyptians from Alexandria, a, a mighty cosmopolitan city, said, we're not staying in this backwoods podunk town of Fairhavens. Let's just go a little bit further. It's like 30 miles. We can make it to Phoenix. Phoenix is a cool city. Let's go there. And just then a, a southerly wind starts to blow. And so they're thinking, yeah, let's do it. That'll be, 
nice and easy. That was the worst decision possible. At that point, everything kind of goes nuts. They, they finally leave Fair Havens going for, uh, for Phoenix, and they never make it. Even just a few 30 miles over, they can never get there. As they sailed west along that southern coast of Crete, a great storm came up among them. The sailors had a name for the kind of storm that came up uh, upon them. The Greek basically translated literally as a nor'easter. Anybody here from, I know Bill's from Boston. Anybody been out in New England when a nor'easter hits? You know what a nor'easter is? It's a terrible storm. Imagine being out at sea when a nor'easter hits. You know, this is how Dr. Luke describes the terror. Look at verse 14 in chapter 27 through verse 20. Soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, that's just to the southwest of Crete, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. That's like the lifeboat, right? They, they try to tie it to the big boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. They, they tried to literally tie the ship together. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, the Sirtis was a sandy shoal on the north of Africa. It was known as a ship's graveyard. So many ships had wrecked on the Sirtis. They lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, again, Luke is with them, so he uses the second person plural, we. We were violently storm-tossed. They began the next day to jettison the cargo. Any hopes of actually delivering the grain to Rome had just disappeared. They say, get rid of it. Anything that's weighing us down, we got to get rid of it. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared, remember that's how they navigated, was with the sun and the stars. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. For two weeks, with no way to guide them, they're basically at the mercy of this storm that rages for two weeks and just blows them, continuing to take them away from their destination. They have no idea where they are, and all hope of being rescued has pretty much been exhausted. Now, I know some of you enjoy boating. Some of you enjoy going out on, some of you own boats. I have friends who love to go deep sea fishing. Anybody here like deep sea fishing? Great, that's great, Calvin. Don't ever take me, okay? I don't want to go. I love you. I don't want to go. Uh, I don't like boats. I don't ever want to be on a boat unless I absolutely have to. I get, uh, I get motion sick very easily. Uh, you know, Morgan at one point was like, let's go on a cruise. Nope, I have no desire. It's a, it's a free crew a week at a, the, 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 this great cruise ship. Nope, I don't ever want to go on a cruise ship ever, ever, ever. I've had some bad experiences, uh, almost sunk a pontoon boat uh, one time, um, got tossed off a sea dew going 50 miles an hour one time and got the wind knocked out of me. I don't like boats. But what Paul and his friends and the 273 other people on this boat experienced probably 
uh, made them not like boats for the rest of their lives either. What they experienced was far worse than what I experienced. They were terrified. They had abandoned hope of being rescued. I'm sure Paul and his Christian friends had surrendered their spirits to the Lord and said, Lord, it's our time to go. It's our time to go. They threw everything overboard and just went into survival mode. Now, Paul had been in some pretty bad situations before though, right? Remember a, a couple years before this uh, in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish you know, authorities in Jerusalem had him right where they wanted him. He was sitting in prison, awaiting probable execution, probable crucifixion. He was gonna be killed finally. But that very night, the living Christ, resurrected physical son of God showed up in his prison cell to encourage him. He personally delivered the message, take heart, take courage. You're gonna make it to Rome. Remember that? He said, you're gonna get there. I promise, because I've appointed you to testify about me in Rome, just like you testified about me in Jerusalem. So it will happen. It was an unconditional promise that the risen Christ gave to Paul. But the Lord never promised that it would be smooth sailing. He never told him it was going to be easy. As Christians, we're never promised that life is going to be easy. Any preacher who says that is wrong. <laughs> Jesus told his followers that in this world, we will have tribulation. We're not spared from the storms, not even the nor'easters, the really bad ones that come. As we follow Christ, there's going to be rough seas. There's going to be loss of navigational checkpoints. There's going to be unfavorable winds that take us where we don't want to go. And maybe there will even be shipwrecks. But there will also be peace that passes understanding in the midst of the storms. There will also be assurance that all things are being worked together, both for our good and for God's glory. There will be fruitfulness as God never wastes pain, but uses it for our good and for his glory. And there will be the sustaining presence of God who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He is with us in the storms. Remember in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus comes walking out on the water to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee who are completely panicked because they're being storm tossed and they don't know how they're going to survive. I didn't remember this, but do you remember why they were out there? Were they fishing? Were they just going for like a joy ride? No, the reason they were out there on the water at that time is because Jesus had told them, get in that boat and go to the other side. And they said, okay, Lord. And they obeyed. The reason they were caught in the storm is because they had done precisely what Jesus had told them to do. And they found themselves in a storm. It's not because of their sin that they ended up in a storm. It's because they were obedient to the word of Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. Jesus will call us into to some situations that we would rather not be in. 
We, if we follow Christ, we will find ourselves in some dark and dangerous places. And when we step out in faith and obedience to him, we find those mo- moments of simultaneous panic and peace. It's a weird place, but it's a good place. I was talking to Braden and Emmy Maffitt today. They're having a baby. They're going to have a baby. We're so excited. <laughs> they told me I could tell you that. And uh, Braden said, we're excited and we're terrified all at the same time. I said, that's perfect. That's right where you need to be. That's great. That's kind of how it is when you're in those storms of life. It is scary. It's okay to say that. We don't know how it's going to be. But we do have a peace that somehow passes all logical, rational reason and understanding in the midst of that anxiety. Jesus came walking out to his disciples in that moment. He follows us in our fear. He alleviates our anxiety. He comforts us in our concern and calms us. Acts 27 is a a thrilling account of a shipwreck, yes. But I think the Lord wants us to see something deeper here in the word of God today. I think he wants us to understand that Acts 27 is really a metaphor for what all Christians will go through at some point in their voyage on this earth of following Christ. Paul's resolute courage in the face of a merciless storm would have been the perfect scene for like a big budget Hollywood movie. You think of like the perfect storm or, or, you know, the Titanic, all these big budget movies. Paul climbs to the front of the ship to address all 275 other people on the boat And he has to shout above the spray and the the pouring rain going sideways and the, the waves hitting the side of the boat. Look at verses 21 to 22 to hear what he says. He stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. Man, I say that a lot. And have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. It's the same message that Jesus told him in the jail cell in Jerusalem. Take courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. How can that be? If we lose the ship, we're dead. How could Paul boldly proclaim this? How could it be that he speaks this prophetic word over them? In the face of certain death, Paul boldly proclaims, we're all gonna make it. We're gonna be okay. How could he do that? Because Paul was anchored in a way that the others knew nothing about, except for Luke and Aristarchus. I love the Vanderbilt cheer. Eddie, what is it? This? Is this right? Anchor down, right? Anchor down. Who was that? James Franklin that started that? That was so cool. Everybody started doing the anchor down thing. And what does it mean to anchor down? You know, I think it means, you know, stand firm, be, be resolute, be immovable, You know, stand your ground. The anchor projects stability, support, and security. As Christians, we have access to these solid spiritual anchors that we're going to see in this text here that can keep us courageous and comforted in the midst of the storms of this life. I'm going to show you four anchors that we see in this text that will keep us grounded and secure in the storms of life. The first anchor is the anchor of God's presence. Look at verse 23. Paul continues to shout to all the crew, 
For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. An angel of the Lord appeared to Paul. The reality of the nearness of God and his messengers, his workers, his spiritual beings, the angels, was more close and more real to Paul than the storm raging around him. How do we see these spiritual beings acting on our behalf around us? How do we become more aware of the nearness of God in our day-to-day routines, especially in the midst of a storm? It's, it's often not through some miraculous encounter of a divine revelation of an angel, but it's through the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit whispering to us, reminding us of the spiritual reality around us. There's a gentle assurance that comes through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So remaining alert to his presence with us in the midst of tough times is really the key to spiritual courage. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully uh, in his letters to Malcolm. He says, God walks everywhere incognito. And the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend, in fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. If we are really awake, then we understand that God is with us, Emmanuel. Just as the sailors around Paul needed to hear that word of encouragement, God is with us. He's ministering to us now. So do others in your life and in my life need to hear that encouraging word. Take heart. God's with us. You know, in the, in the midst of a contentious national election, in the midst of a panicked population, they need to hear the voice of the church saying to our nation, no matter who wins, no matter what happens, no matter what, uh, when the vaccine comes, no matter what goes on, God's good purposes will prevail. Take heart, take courage. The second anchor that we see here in this text is the anchor of God's ownership. Look again at verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. I belong to this God. Paul knew that he was God's precious, beloved property. You know, Scripture uses lots of images of how God owns us in a loving way. When a husband and wife give themselves to each other in marriage, it's a, it's a mutual, I give myself to you, I give myself to you. Scripture uses that metaphor to talk about the church and God. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16 says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. God's given himself to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we've given ourselves to God by grace through faith. It really is an intimate union with the divine. We belong to God like a sheep belongs to a shepherd. One of my favorite passages, John chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay, my, I lay down my life for the sheep. That's how we belong to God. We belong to him like children 
belong to their father. I love when Randy sings good, good father and reminds us that God sees us as a good, good father sees his children. First John chapter three, verse one, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. As parents, we love to talk about our children. God sees us as his children. Finally, we belong to God because he made us. He knit us together in our mother's womb and he died to bring us back to himself. We belong to him doubly. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We can stand strong in the storm knowing that God will not abandon his own. The third anchor we see in this text is the anchor of service to God. Remember in Blues Brothers, right? They can't be stopped, but why not? We're on a mission from Gad. We're on a mission from Gad, right? Over and over again. He's like, we know we're going to succeed because we're on a mission from God. What could possibly thwart us? What could possibly stop us? God had already told Paul, you're going to Rome. He's like, oh, I'm not going to die in this shipwreck. I'm going to Rome. You know, several centuries before Acts 27, this is fascinating, on the same sea, there was another storm. And there was another boat that was being tossed in that storm. And there was a guy on that boat named Jonah. Jonah did not have that anchor. Instead of giving himself to God's service, he was running from God's service. And how did that end up? He was thrown overboard. Instead of encouraging the men on that boat saying, take heart, God's not going to abandon us. He's with us. Instead, Jonah says, throw me overboard, guys. I'm out of here. <laughs> he kind of gave up because he didn't have that anchor of service to God. To be committed to God's work is a gracious gift from God that brings courage and resoluteness through whatever storms we encounter because we're on a mission from God. Finally, and most importantly, we, we see here the anchor of trust in God. That's the one that really ties all this together, okay? Look at verses 24 and 25. God's angel said to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who will sail with you. God's given them into your safety net, is what he's saying to Paul here. So Paul basically says, it's, it's going to be okay, guys, because I believe in God. And God is trustworthy. You can believe what God says. He is faithful and true all the time. Believe with me. And this anchor, again, really sums up all the other anchors. If we trust the other three anchors, if we trust the anchor of God's presence with us, if we trust the anchor of God's ownership over us, if we trust the anchor that we're on a mission from God, then we will have that courage to stand firm in the midst of the storms of life. Trusting fully that God is both all-powerful and all-good at the same time. Those are not mutually exclusive. That enables us to shout above the storm, above the waves and the wind, that all things are going to work together for our good. 
Do we, do we think that? Do we think that all things work together for our good? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, as Paul would later write in Romans 8.28? Or do we, as Paul said, know? Do we know in our souls that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? We should know that in our souls. So after Paul shouts these words of encouragement, did the storm go away and everything get better? No, things got worse. The conditions got worse. In the darkness, the sailors were plumbing the depths of the ocean floor and they realized they were getting closer and closer to some kind of land and they were certain the ship was soon going to bust up. And guess what? They were right. They were getting closer to the rocky bottom. So Paul incurred, they'd been rationing their food. Paul says, eat up. Let's go ahead and eat. You need some strength. Trust me, you're going to need this strength. Go ahead and eat. Look at verse 38. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, Julius, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and first make for the land and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land, just as God said it would be. You know, I, not one soul was lost. God's plan was executed perfectly and the name of the Lord was glorified. It's just another day in the life of Paul, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, in our success-oriented culture, a lot of us are object-oriented. For me, I would have said Rome is the goal. We got to get to Rome. But I think God here was more process-oriented. He was more interested in how they got to Rome. You know, storms teach us. Storms sharpen us. They shape us in indelible ways. And storms can also be for the sake of others around us as well. You know, I pray that in the midst of a pandemic that people will be looking for anchors. People will be looking for something solid on which to hold in the storm of a pandemic. We have anchors that we can show the world. I wonder how many of those 273 Roman and Egyptian crew members ended up becoming Christians on the island that they shipwrecked on. Are you in a storm today? We all are in some ways. If you're not in a storm, it's coming. Do you feel like your ship is being torn apart? Let's hold fast to the immovable anchors that the Lord has graciously given us. The anchor of God's presence, he is with us. The anchor of God's possession, we are his beloved treasure. The anchor that comes through serving God, him fulfilling his good purposes through us. And finally, the anchor of faith and trust in the Lord. Take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly 
as I have been told. With anchors like these, who can stand against us? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have not abandoned us in this storm, but that you have given us these beautiful, solid, firm anchors on which we can hold and grasp. Lord, I pray that you would continue to show us how we can hold fast to the anchors of spiritual reality that you have shown us through your word and through the Holy Spirit. God, forgive us for panicking. Forgive us for fearing. In perfect love, there is no fear, oh God. We pray that we would cling more closely to your nearness and cultivate a deeper awareness of how you walk among us incognito. God, I pray that you would comfort our weary souls. And more importantly than, than our comfort, God, I pray that you would use our anchors that we have to bring others to you. May we hold out those anchors to those who are tossed in the storms of this life, that they may come to know you as their Lord and Savior and come from death to life, from hopelessness to hope eternal. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know what your life is like right now, but if you need to respond to the goodness of the Lord today, don't leave this place without dealing with the Lord. We're going to sing a hymn of response, how deep the Father's love for us. He loves us in such an amazing, incredible way that we are called children of God, and that is what we are. If you need to respond today uh, by, by giving your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time, I'd love to talk with you about that right now. Just invite you to come forward as we sing. If you are interested in becoming a part of Woodmont Baptist Church and joining what God is doing here officially as a member and saying, I'm in, I want to be a part of this church family and, and not only be poured into, but pour out as well into others, we'd love to talk to you about becoming a member of Woodmont. Whatever it is that you need to do today, don't leave this place without dealing honestly with the Lord who loves us and who gives us anchors in the storm. I invite you to stand and sing at this time.